Uh, please remain standing and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 14. 1 Samuel chapter 14. Regrettably, uh, <laughs> there's so much in this passage. Not regrettably, there's so much in this passage, but uh, we have to split it up. Even though it is one entire unit here, uh, one unit of a text, uh, we will have to split it up simply because there's so much richness in this passage. So instead of reading all of 1 Samuel 14, we will go from verse 1 to verse 23. So this is, again, 1 Samuel 14, starting at verse 1. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sané. And the one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Gibeah. Uh, Giba, rather. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison, to the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. The men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about 20 men within, uh, within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, and the field, and among all the people. The garrison, even the raiders, trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them in the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. 
Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond beth Aven. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. I am a child of the 1980s. Pay no attention to the fact that I only spent a month out of the womb in the 1980s. Uh, It remains a fact. I am an 80s child, just as much as my wife, four months younger than I am, is a child of a different decade, the 1990s. And as a fellow 80s child, I enjoyed Rambo with all you other 80s children. He was a product of his circumstances, Rambo was, one of the maligned soldiers who returned from Vietnam and a lethal weapon because of that experience. Much of what he did was completely unrealistic, and that's partly why it was enjoyable, and it was incredibly cool as a young me, as I'm sure it was for many of you. He was a one-man army. But before there was this fictional Rambo, there was the real Jonathan of 1 Samuel, These two are both one-man armies and full of boldness, but there the comparison seems to end. Jonathan was a man who fought against his circumstances, whereas Rambo and Saul are characters based completely on their circumstances, as products of their circumstances. This text shows us that circumstances do matter, but just like in Rambo, the worse the circumstances, the better the story. We have a good story here in Jonathan and his works and a dire, dire circumstance surrounding him. This whole chapter, 1 Samuel, 4, 1 Samuel 14, is a unit. As I said before, there's too much richness in here to take it in one bite, so we'll take the first half tonight. But it's a chapter, the whole chapter, is a chapter of contrasts. Jonathan, the son of Saul, is a man who is bold in his circumstances because of what he knows to be true of uh, for Jonathan, the son of Saul, is bold in his circumstances because of what he knows to be true about God. He is God. Whereas Saul is a man who is bold in his circumstances because of what he knows to be true, or at least what he thinks to be true, about himself and his skills, like Rambo. Jonathan, by contrast, acts in accordance with what he knows to be true about God, in faith regardless of circumstances. Saul lives in accordance with circumstances, regardless of faith. Jonathan regards God, whom he believes. Because of their difference in the object of their faith, so many different things happen in this chapter, and they contrast one who believes with one who believes in self and power. They respond to bad providences completely differently. Getting back to our dire circumstances for Israel, this is what our author points to in in the circumstances in verse 1. A little surprising, in fact, Uh, but we're getting first to Jonathan and then the setting of Jonathan's success in verses 1 through 5. First, the author of 1 Samuel sets the scene of Jonathan's success. After Saul's foolishness and not trusting God's covenant faithfulness as the Philistines surrounded him in 1 Samuel 13, we find Israel cowering in caves. Israel is reduced to only 600 men faithful to Saul, which included some unsavory people. In verse 3, God specifically points to Ahijah, 
the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. Besides being cornered and hiding in caves, as a part of the, the setting here, this appointment here is a very, very bad sign for Saul and besieged Israel. The Saul uh, that we are seeing here is a man who God said he will no longer support because of his sin, just in the chapter before, and whose son, Jonathan, unfortunately is rejected from the throne after his death. This Saul is asking another family for help whom God has also rejected. That is, the family of Eli, the former high priest of Israel. In the absence of Samuel, Saul panics and finds whoever he can to be in the priestly garb. And whoever he could get was Ahijah, the descendant of the rejected Eli's house. Saul's not going back. Saul's not repenting of his sins before God any longer. It's Saul against the world right now and whoever can support him, whatever God says. And he's in the process of attempting to pull himself up by his own bootstraps. We find here Saul in his very own Vietnam, the turning point of his life, so to speak. It shouldn't be a surprise then when the author tells us in verse 1 that Jonathan didn't tell his father about his plan. This plan of attack would not make any sense to Saul because it was a tactic only a heart of faith would understand. Saul's heart was only a heart of power, Jonathan says in his, to his companion, his armor bearer, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. To set the scene further, Jonathan and his armor bearer are on one side of a rocky crag, a rocky valley, facing off against the Philistines. To go over the other side would mean going through two passes called Bozes and Sané, which literally mean slippery and thorny. Jonathan and his bearer of arms come up with what would seem like foolishness to any detached military mind. They must go through an impossible pass against impossible odds with an impossibly small force of two. Amid all this, Jonathan says confidently to his armor bearer in verse 6, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. And this ought to push us to ask this question. Is Jonathan crazy? Is he, is he trying to get himself killed? Does he have a death wish? If I were a soldier in Saul's army, it would probably be my first thought to think that he had a death wish. But helpfully, we know what Jonathan's motives and thoughts were in taking this kind of action. It was written here in Scripture for us. To finish, verse 6, Jonathan says this, because it may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan's motives were faith motives. Motives rooted in the knowledge of God and in the hatred of sin. So as we continue on to the motive of of Jonathan's success, uh, first we see Jonathan's love of God. Actually, when he says, speaking of the Philistines, he says, these uncircumcised. His love of God is shown in his hatred of evil. He calls the Philistines not by name. He calls them these uncircumcised. It's a reference to the covenant. That is their covenant place. To be uncircumcised meant to a holy people, that these were unholy, unclean people, people still in their sins. 
people still in their sins, an enemy against God in God's land. David, the man after God's own heart, uses this same phrase in 1 Samuel 17 when he goes up against Goliath. He says, this uncircumcised. This is a mind in the covenant. There's a covenant hatred that Jonathan has, one for God's glory and therefore against sin. A covenant hatred of the defilement of sin, not yet washed away by God in the land of God's promise. It wasn't that the Philistines were not Israelites. It wasn't that they were a different ethnicity to them, which would be a kind of nationalism. Jonathan hated what was unclean. In circumcision, God was cleansing for himself a people. Part of Jonathan's motive was hatred of sin. But second, part of his motive, and the purpose, the great purpose of this passage, was to show the bold faith in God and his promises. Jonathan is an example of incredibly bold faith. This pushed Jonathan to action in his faith. Jonathan is one of the boldest characters, in fact, in all of Scripture, But what was the cause of this boldness? According to Jonathan, it was bold trust in God. He says, come, let us go over. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. This, in verse 6, is an incredibly bold faith. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan's confession in verse 6 is the confession of one who has faith in God and not in himself. He does not say, come, let us go over. Perhaps my plan will work. Perhaps we will overcome them. He says, perhaps the Lord will work. This is what Dale Ralph Davis calls faith imagination. When cornered, Jonathan did not bewail or sink deeper into his hole in his circumstances. Instead, he contemplated and considered the Lord and his promises and his strength. Perhaps the Lord will work. And he himself got to work with that encouragement of the promises. This boldness is the product of faith in action. The more faith acts, the more bold it becomes. And we saw this with Jonathan in 1 Samuel 13. He, in fact, was the first one who went against the Philistines. It was not Saul, but Jonathan. His boldness has beget more boldness in Christ. Rather, boldness in the Messiah. Of course, he does not know uh, Jesus Christ by name, but boldness in the Messiah. To Jonathan, God's promises matter far more than his dire circumstances. To Jonathan, bad circumstances are good opportunities for bold faith. Who knows what the Lord might do in these circumstances is what really he is asking. We ought to be bold knowing who God is. Perhaps the Lord will work. And that is what happens in this passage. The Lord works according to his promises. He first, Jonathan thinks, I can only imagine upon, upon these promises, and upon many others, but I will give you only two. Deuteronomy 32.30 How could one have chased a thousand, and two have put ten thousand to flight, unless their rock had sold them, and the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. Promise two to Saul against the Philistines. In fact, in Jonathan's own lifetime, 1 Samuel 9, 16, 
Saul shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. Equipped with these promises, he has bold faith. We too ought to be equipped with the promises of God. It's very evident by this that Jonathan lived upon the promises and not upon appearances of circumstances. It would be suicide to storm any position with only two men. But Jonathan believes he is not alone. For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. God is with him. What is the effect of Jonathan's faith in our passage as well? Well, the immediate effect of Jonathan's bold faith, and this is in verse 7, is to bring about faith of others. That is, the faith of his retainer, his armor bearer. Although unimaginable and impossible as a circumstance, his faith in God inspired other people to come with him in his impossible task, welling up in others a like faith. His armor bearer says, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. What a blessed effect faith has upon those around us. That those under a leader who possess bold faith can confess to follow them, heart and soul, even unto possible death. For it wasn't the plan itself that inspired confidence in this man. The plan was not a brilliant military strategy, but a bold-faced defiance of the power of the uncircumcised against his holy God. This is the plan that he brought about. Jonathan's success was based upon a strategy not advised in any military textbook. Any military man, the audience would know that they should not do something like this. No, this is obviously a military tactic only given to Israel in the kingdom age. So if you are in the military, don't follow what Jonathan does here. Uh, This was for Old Testament Israel. In Jonathan's day, in the kingdom age of Israel, faith in God was their ultimate weapon, as it is today. 1 Samuel is all about this from Hannah's song onward. Today, the Lord has not promised military victories to the church through faith. We are not called to military conquest, as the Old Testament Israel was. However, he has promised victory. How do we apply this today? Not physically, as in Jonathan's physical military victory of killing thousands of Philistines, but spiritually. That is, we fight not against flesh and blood, but the spiritual powers in this evil age. However, we see in Jonathan's plan, appropriate plan, even if it seems crazy, for his covenant age. It is a flanking assault, yes, of a superior force, but without cover or concealment. And Jonathan, his armor bearer, make themselves completely openly shown to these enemies. And it's an integral part of their plan, in fact, in verses 8 through 10. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our places, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign for us. Of course, again, in the military mindset, this is madness. But the mindset upon covenant promises looks mad often to the people around. We ought to keep this in mind for ourselves. We know the outcome of this bold plan of faith on God's promises. But to the people around, they would already think the outcome is death. For us, we set our mind upon the promises. After Jonathan, the armor bearer, killed 20 men, God throws the Philistines into an utter panic. 
and after an earthquake, the Philistines start to kill one another en masse. This self-slaughter happened only one time, at least at this time, only one time before in Israelite history. This was in Gideon's time. You remember the story. Gideon was a judge called out by God for one purpose, to destroy the Midianites who opposed Israel. He did this in the face of an overwhelming force, and even still, God made him reduce his force to mere 300 men. God told them to do battle, not with swords and shields, but with trumpets, torches, and pots. And Israel won because of the obvious power of God. And not only was Midian defeated, never to rise again, but this set off a chain reaction at that time. They destroyed nation after nation of uncircumcised, where Zeba and Zalmunna rose up against Israel. They too were destroyed in Gideon's time. But Saul's response to this great providence and a great expectation that Israel should have of a great victory to come upon them, Saul's response to Jonathan's success seems to be somewhere in between panic and expectation as he not only numbers his troops at the movement of the Philistines, but numbers them expecting people either to have deserted or to have gone on the attack. We'll find as we learn more about Saul in the coming months that this is very characteristic of Saul's paranoia. So we go next to Saul's failures. This is quickly in 1 Samuel 14, verses 16 through 22. We will be reviewing these things more next time uh, as Saul's failures will be more of a focus. Uh, Jonathan's successes is more of the focus of the first part of 1 Samuel 14. But one of his great failures here is not asking of the Lord, but trusting in himself. It looks actually in our passage that he does want to ask the Lord. He starts by asking that the ark of the Lord might come into his presence and that the priest might go and speak with the Lord. But we see, after he sees the tumult that is happening in the the Philistine ranks, he starts second-guessing himself. No, actually, now's the time. He's thinking in a military tactics manner. Now's the time to go. Whatever God says, he says in verse 19, withdraw your hand to Ahijah, Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. Saul didn't ask the Lord. He didn't really care what the Lord had to say. He did it because of appearances. He trusted God somewhat, but he trusted himself and his own abilities more. What a stark contrast to Jonathan. Jonathan bases his own actions on the promises of God, whereas Saul actually stops God from speaking that he might do what he wants. How much do we listen to ourselves like Saul in this manner, stopping God from speaking or stopping ourselves from going to his word? We are all too often much more like Saul at drowning out God's word. Saul's failures, in fact, doom Jonathan. That is, doom him as king. It does not mean they doom him to death. Of course, this is the case in Israelite history, as we'll find out later, that Jonathan, in fact, dies with his father. But what I mean is that Jonathan is disqualified because Saul is disqualified. This shows that Saul is disqualified. Part of the the point of 1 Samuel 14 is that although what the Lord said in 1 Samuel 13 was that his line would not continue, that doesn't mean 
that Saul himself would stop being king. But he is proving now in chapter 14 that he is disqualified because he does not care what the Lord says. But we often are like Saul because of our circumstances, depressed at our circumstances. Saul felt like he was being controlled by his circumstances and not by God because he was a practical atheist in this manner. God did not enter into his thinking except in a practical manner. That is, what will the others say? God was not really part of his life and his thinking. We must learn to think like Jonathan. Bad providences are good opportunities for bold faith. Let us be sure, though, the quality of Jonathan's faith is excellent, true. But the point of this passage, the the great point of this passage, is not the quality of Jonathan's, Saul's, or anyone's faith. Look again at Jonathan's armor bearer. If anything, his faith was in Jonathan even more than in God. But it's because God promised to use even the faith of a mustard seed to move mountains that they won that day. That is, it's not about the strength of Jonathan or the armor bearer or Saul in their faith, but about the strength of Jonathan's God, the armor bearer's God. We see this explicitly in verse 23. How does the author of 1 Samuel summarize what happened in this passage? So the Lord saved Israel that day. This is about the Lord and his working through bold faith. Jonathan recognizes that God is king and that he has chosen to be victorious in Israel over his enemies in this manner. That is, through faith in him and his promises. This story is not about Jonathan or his faith specifically, but Jonathan's God in whom he has faith. God is powerful, therefore we are bold to fight against sin and the devil. That is, God is the rescuing God, verse 23. God is the God of salvation. God is the God of victory through bold faith. The church overcomes its enemies which surround us on every side, not through our own power, as Saul might think, but through God's power. Although our powers will be required of us, just as Jonathan exhausted himself after killing 20 Philistines and killing many more, as we will find later on, we do not take God's power to mean that he will leave us out. Jonathan still acted upon the Philistines. No, he almost always uses our power working for his good and power. God uses us as instruments to conquer sin and lost souls as he used Jonathan to conquer the Philistines. Will we answer the call of faith like Jonathan? However, although we are called not only to faith, but to hate sin and to fight against it and to bring others into, uh, by the Holy Spirit's power, into faith. However, In one work, in one work of God, he refused absolutely to use us. It was so important that it be shown that it was God alone doing this, that he refused our work. And it was so important that he would not leave it up to us and our faith. God entrusted this work alone to his own son. That was his fight against sin, Satan, and even ourselves. He says to us in the battle, Take heart, I have overcome the world. 
Again, in this passage and in all the Bible, it is about God's power in which we have faith. In this story, we are more like Jonathan's armor bearer than even Jonathan. We are followers, and yet we are also conquerors because we are followers, just like the armor bearer. We follow Christ unto death itself and back out of death because Christ went before us into death and back. We look to Christ because he has already conquered and conquers even death. What are our difficult circumstances in comparison with this conquest? We too are men under authority. Because of this, we can leap at the opportunities that God provides before us in faith, saying perhaps, as Jonathan did, perhaps the Lord will work in our faith imagination. Perhaps bad providences are good opportunities for bold faith and do great things for God, even alone and even with bad leaders and with bad providences, as we see with Jonathan here, because we follow our Savior who led us even through death, and he destroyed his foe and our foe. Satan has been destroyed in that he has been conquered. He cannot touch us any longer, brothers and sisters, because the Lord has worked. Now, he has done this on his own, but he calls us to fight Philistines. That is our own sins. We follow like the armor bearer with Jonathan. That bad providences are good opportunities for bold faith. At the end of his life, John Knox, a man many of you know uh, as Presbyterians, was asked how he was able to do so very much in his own life. His answer is very helpful and much like Jonathan. He said, a man with God is always in the majority. So for us as Christians, a man with God is always in the majority. You do not have to worry. Your faith has already been secured. Your king has already fought for you. We follow after him in faith. And because we follow after him, let us have boldness in faith like, jo- like Jonathan and his armor bear who went before us. Let us go to our great God and powerful God in prayer. Our Lord, we thank you that you are such a great God, that you have rescued us from an even greater foe than the Philistines. We thank you, Lord, that you have rescued us and not even using our own power as you used Jonathan in the Old Testament. We thank you, Lord, that you have worked in our hearts. You have conquered us as well, that in our faith we might be bold and follow after you, not thinking that our works will save us by any means. But Lord, now that we are saved, as Jonathan was a man who lived upon the promises and had faith in his God, we ask, Lord, that we would confess with him, perhaps the Lord will work, and confess with people like John Knox, a man with God is always in the majority. Give us boldness, Lord, like Jonathan. Give us boldness that we would live the life of faith, trusting in your power for salvation, and trusting in your power to heal. Give us prayer, Lord. Give us the eyes of faith. Make us to read your word. And like Saul, we pray, Lord, that your word would be welling up within us. For we know 
Uh, Their rock, that is the rock of others around us, is not as our rock. They are by themselves, and we are in the majority. Lord, give us faith, we pray, O Lord, to be with Christ, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that as he has perfected it, he has made us go into a race. And we pray, Lord, in that race we would run well according to what you have given us in your power to your glory. We ask all this, O Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.